Hello, and welcome to Fist of Firsts, the podcast where I find out what makes the people who make us laugh tick. I'm Tim Reed. I'm a TV sitcom writer, and I'll be asking a bunch of the biggest names in comedy a load of first-time questions to uncover the pivotal moments in their lives, their careers, and their creative process. I want to find out how the people who think differently think. And I really hope you'll find it interesting and hopefully useful, because I think there's method in their madness that we can all learn from to help us think differently and be more creative. In this week's episode, I'm talking to John Richardson, team captain of Channel 4's Cats Does Countdown, host of Ultimate Warrior, star of the unbelievably hilarious Meet the Richardsons, all episodes available on UK TV Play, and he's a regular on Have I Got News For You, Live at the Apollo, Would I Lie To You, Taskmaster, you name it, John's been on it. Now I've known John for nearly 10 years. He's smart, he's funny, and in the chat you're about to hear, I found out things about him that I didn't know. So you'll find out who inspired him to take to the cardigan, and it's not who you might think. You might be surprised to find out that the Lancaster Lord of Rules and Regulations is actually a rebel and a rule breaker. And you'll hear what priceless piece of advice Sean Locke gave to John when he was just starting out. Enjoy. John, how you doing? I'm very well, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Good to see you. Yeah, it's nice to see you too. I don't usually look at people on these things. Do you not? Look at you. You've got a lovely uh, exposed beams there and a nice wicker chair in the background. Yeah, thanks very much. I thought you said exposed hairline. I thought that was where you were going. But Oh, you'll get a no mockery from me. I'm going that way too, mate. <laughs> I know I've spotted. I've... No, you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to I say... I know you really are and it's happening quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm enjoying it. Yeah. <laughs> TikTok. Yeah. Well, thanks for being my first, actually. You're my first on Fist of Firsts. I know. What an honour. No, I'm really grateful because I know you've got a lot on at the moment. In fact, you've just been recording one of your many podcasts this morning. Yes. Yeah, I've done one. I'm the first guest, so I'm the one you have to say to other people, oh, John Richardson's done it, thinking they'll go, oh, well, that's all right. And then they'll go, well, of course he fucking has. What else is he going <laughs> yeah, to do? He's constantly doing podcasts. So Future Notes, John and the Future Notes, about to come back the out. The Future Notes is my serious trying to save the planet one with your friend and ours, Mark Stevenson and Ed Gillespie. Very clever men. And then I do one with Matt Ford, which is mostly gastric. Yeah. Catching up and having a chat. Down the Dog. Down the Dog, which is the dog and bastard, the pub I have in my house. I know, I've seen it. Lucky boy. We've put it on telly together, haven't we? We have, haven't we? Yeah, you wrote an embarrassing scene where I get caught playing the guitar and singing in there. Oh, yeah. Which I'm ever grateful. <laughs> you played it beautifully. I did. I played the chord you taught me. Yeah, just five minutes earlier. I know. Music's a piece of piss, isn't it? It is, yeah. Anyone could do we it. really lost respect for musicians yeah. since we did that scene. I know. Apparently, Ed Sheeran has someone doing the same thing, like five minutes before, just go and say, it's a C, Ed. It's a C, like that. You put your fingers like that. So the point of Fist of Firsts is, well, it's supposed to feel just like a chat, just like mm-hmm. a relaxed chat, but really what it is is I'm going to get deep inside your soul. Oh, no. Yeah, and uncover and share with everyone the real John Richardson. Oh, God. But I'm going to do it through stealth. You won't even notice that it's happening. Yeah, I'll listen back to it then, because I don't think I know what the real John Richardson is. So I'll listen back and see what you've got out of me. Yeah, all right. Like I say, it's going to happen by stealth. You won't notice. It's just in the guise of asking lots of first-time questions. So, like, first time you did this, first time you did that. You're sort of talking like this is sponsored by the police. There's nothing. Well, I'm hoping it won't feel like that once we've got started. No, okay. You're not going to get anything naughty out of me, though, are you? I don't think I've done anything naughty. I don't think there is anything naughty to be had out of asking comedians questions. I just... <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've seen the news. You might be very disappointed. Not for a while, no, I've been away. <laughs> but I'm going to start with... So this is a deck of cards. These are the fist of first cards. Have you made those? I have. Oh, that's I have, yeah. That's proper. I thought it'd just be screwed up pieces of paper in a hat. No, no, They're no. These are, these are proper... Proper cards, yeah. Even... How many? 52? Oh, there are 52, of course, there's 52. I wouldn't do it any other way. But I thought if we start with that, just a quick fire first. So what, what I think I'll do, because I think this will work, is if I shuffle them and then when you think the time just feels right, mm-hmm. like with tarot, that's the science behind tarot. I'm going to call it quite soon because <laughs> you are worse at shuffling than anyone I've ever seen, oh, I think. I know. So I'm going to stop you there. Okay, so I'm going to turn three over now, and we'll just okay. use those to get us started. All right, here it. 
One, two, three. What have we got? <gasps> Death. <laughs> First thing you did today. Oh, well, my daughter wakes up before me, so she shouts, Daddy! Uh-huh. And I look at my phone to see what the time is, and she says, is it morning yet? And sometimes I say, no. Go back to bed, it's dark. It's quarter past five in the morning. <laughs> and I know she's not going to go back to sleep because she's decided she's getting up anyway. But today it was 7 a.m. Was it? And that was fantastic. So I say, yeah, it's morning. And she comes in and we have a little cuddle. And sometimes she goes and gets me a book and reads me a story in bed. Nice. And then I go and get her breakfast and all that gubbins. So just a dad's morning, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Lucy's away at the minute, so everything's ship shape. The tour. Yeah, she's previewing down in London. So I'm not going to say it's better, Tim. Of course it's not better. It's great when we're all together. <laughs> but things are a lot smoother in the morning. Mm. First stop you'd make in a time machine. So imagine you had a time oh. machine. Where'd you stop? Do you know what well, my first reaction, and I think it's just because he's in the news at the minute, is I would go back to when Rick Mail was still alive. Yeah. And I would go to the set of Man Down and just shake his hand. Just I always thought I would get to, and now I'm not going to, and it uh, bothers me. Yeah. It's not a very historically significant answer. Oh, no, but it's an insightful one, and it does give us a window into your soul. Oh, no, you've done it already. I know, I know you yeah, see. Sly dog, you're already in there. <laughs> Have you heard Aid Edmondson's? Desert Island Discs. Yeah. No, somebody told me to listen to it, and it wasn't where I get my podcasts, which is where you're supposed uh, to say, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you where I get my podcasts. The Desert Island Discs hasn't arrived yet, <laughs> but I think it's quite sad, isn't it? Well, it's a mix, obviously. Again, they do it well, don't they, in terms of window on the soul. They do that well. Oh, don't be trying to rival Laverne now, mate. <laughs> don't come in at one and try to be doing Desert Island Discs. And what book would you bring? <laughs> but no, it was good. And it, there were sad bits, for sure. As a Rick Mayo fan, yeah, you should definitely yes. have a listen. And an Aid Edmondson fan, of course. A question I was going to get to after the cards, so let's get straight in, was your first comedy hero. I'm guessing Rick might have been up there. I think probably, yeah, in terms of hero, because I think that came before I was really watching a lot of stand-up. Yeah. So I think I was watching Bottom quite early. So how old would you have been about that time? Well, when uh, perhaps I misremember when Bottom was, but in my head, very sort of early 90s, so yeah. 10, 11, something like that, 12. Yeah. It's a question you get asked a lot in interviews is sort of who are your comedy idols? And mm. I realise the more I answer, because sometimes the answer is different, what a time to be an adolescent in the 90s is just if you were into like shagging and drugs in the 60s that was the time to do it wasn't it not the 50s <laughs> but the 60s and that's what i feel about comedy in the 90s everything yeah. was good sitcom was good sketch yeah. was good stand up was good it was just an incredible time so you can't really move for great stuff on telly and I feel like that now, looking back, I could list Rick Mail or Shooting Stars or Fast Show or all the good stand-ups that were around and even people like Linda Smith who pop yeah, up yeah. every now and again on stuff, but there's just the quality was so high. You just couldn't move for stuff. So I, I don't know how you couldn't be sort of getting into comedy in that decade and not love all of it. And have you ever wondered about why it was, why the 90s was like that? Because obviously it was, wasn't it? There was the rock and roll stand-ups like Newman and Badil, and that was early 90s, wasn't it? That kind yeah. of time. Is it because it was like post the alternative scene? So it kind of alternative had grown up a little bit. I think so, yeah. Maybe the sort of alternative thing had smashed down the sort of... The old school. I mean, what they called that. I, I don't really understand the alternative, I mean. I know alternative at the time meant not the mainstream, which meant not Bernard Manning and all that lot. Maybe by then that had sort of... Mm. spread out to just you could play bigger arenas and you could do yeah. telly and not be you didn't have to just be defined by not being them you could be because even one foot in the grave was mainstream oh, yeah but astonishingly good french and saunders was mainstream mm. even though they'd come through that comic strip that was their schooling yeah their comedy wasn't the french and saunders sketch show it wasn't about trying to be different to anything else. It was just the stuff they thought was funniest. No, that's so true that it wasn't alternative in the sense that like punk was trying to break down the establishment, but it was yeah. kind of an alternative to what had been before. But 
as you say, very quickly just became the mainstream. That's the way yes. comedy was going. In that it was starting to be less about jokes and more about, I don't know, characters, observation, obviously. I guess then for you, for a young John Richardson, at that time when you were surrounded by all this golden comedy, was it always a thought to get into comedy or was it something that came later? Much, much later, yeah. yeah. I knew I was obsessed by it, but I, it just never even occurred to me it was a career. I mean, I wouldn't have even... It's not even like a dream. It's not even like thinking you might become a Premier League footballer. I, just, I couldn't see any entry into that world because mm. where I grew up, it's not like I'd see people on telly and they'd be playing... You know, I grew up in Lancaster, which is a big enough city. It has plenty going on, but it didn't have a big theatre that you would play. So it's not like I knew that person's going to be on tour here. Yeah. Bailey Connolly, French and Saunders, whatever yeah. it was, they didn't play Lancaster. So I didn't even think, oh, well, if they're doing the theatre, then maybe there's something mm. at the theatre that I can get into. There was no bridge at all between what I was seeing on telly and jobs, be that behind the camera or in front. There was just no path. And that didn't kick in until really late, like after I dropped out of uni, yeah. was the first time I found out about open mic nights and pub nights and that actually the industry is much wider than what you're seeing, which is the end point. Yeah. So you started to get exposed to the entry point. Yeah. I was well into my sort of twenties by then. So this teenage me obsessed with comedy was just, mm. and it's not like even being into music where you're like, well, I can learn the guitar and I can emulate that. And nobody's buying a microphone and doing stand up routines in their bedroom, yeah. no matter how much they love comedy. So it was just purely an obsession. I didn't realize I was doing it, but I was going into school and reenacting sketches and playing characters and doing voices and the Harry Enfield and all that stuff. I was doing that, but that to me wasn't trying to become them. So was that just something that all your mates did? Or were you the funny guy? No, I don't think so. I was a nerd. And I think when you're a nerd, you, you're you not talking about the football results or anything. You're talking about the other things. So you're talking about computer games and even playing computer games would be doing voices and things. But again, I think most kids do that. My daughter now is seven and she loves doing silly voices. And I'm not looking at that as a sort of She's not finding her way in a career. Yeah. I think she just likes making people laugh and experimenting with what her voice can do and what rude things she can get away with. Comedy's a great way of getting away with being rude as a kid. It's a great way of making friends as well, though, isn't it, I suppose? Is it? I think so. Were you doing it for that to kind of fit in or were you doing it to entertain people and make people laugh? It never occurred to me not to do it. My friends watched the same thing I did. But, and it, it was sort of an evolution from watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and then going and playing it in the street. So we yeah, would yeah. watch an episode and then I would be Donatello and I'd get a big stick and my mates <laughs> would go and play out on there. Yeah. They live next door to a sort of tip. So we'd either play on the tip or they were building a sports <laughs> centre. We'd go and play on the building site and... It was the next evolution of that, I guess. It's just, well, I'll be rich and you'll be Eddie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just acting stuff out. Was it at that time you thought, do you know what, I'm good at this? Or not at all? It was just no, something No, because it wasn't something you could be good at. Mm. I think football, if you play, you know who the good kids are. Nobody was saying to me, I knew I could do accents. Mm. But again, it, it was an irrelevance because there's nothing you could do with it. So it didn't matter. It was sort of like being good at computer games. It was good for you because you enjoyed doing it, but... I was just never going to get to be a professional Mario Carter. Yeah. <laughs> and now you probably could yeah. with streaming and everything. Yeah. But, you know. You talked about when you discovered the open mic nights and stuff when you were older or at uni. Can you remember a time when you thought, I I'm going to give that a go? I remember at university we went to see so it was after I dropped out, but I, I was in student accommodation and they didn't throw me out, which I was sort of thought they would because I left at the end of the first term and I thought, God, mm. I'm going to be homeless. But I got to stay in the house I was in with my two friends, which is brilliant because it was really cheap. So I didn't have to work a lot. I got a couple of chefing jobs just to earn money and I was able to sort of stay afloat that year. And my mates took me to see Lee Mack at the Hen and Chicken in Bristol mm. because I was a bit down. And I said to them, when we came out, we'd had a few beers, and I said, I'm going to try that. And we had the biggest argument in the street, because I think wow. they thought they were protecting me. They said, don't do that. Oh, really? That's a really bad idea. And they said, you're really funny, but that's something else. Yeah, yeah. And it ended with like screaming at each other in the really? street. Because they didn't know what I was really saying is, 
I'm going to be depressed for the rest of my life unless I get to do that. Yeah. They just thought I was having a breakdown in the way that you might say, I'm going to grow a ponytail and get a yeah. motorbike. <laughs> I think that's what they thought I was yeah. saying. So they thought they were going to try and protect you from it. but Yeah, you know, I'd gone to a grammar school and then gone to Bristol Uni and then dropped. I think they were thinking, well, no. They saw their mate having a breakdown. Yeah, get a salaried job, become a sales rep or something. You're bright. So even at that point then, were you thinking of it as a career? Because it's a big leap from going to Lee Mac and suddenly thinking, I want to do that. What happened? So by then I'd maybe started to watch Have I Got News For You and things like that and start to think that joke that came to me in my head is the one that they've just said on telly. And I was sort of aware panel shows were really key for my, so whose lines anyway, have I got news for you? There was one, I think it was called if I ruled the world and it had Graham garden and Jeremy Hardy as the team captains. And I would watch that. And this probably was an evolution from going and doing the bottom sketches. That was like training. And I would idolize Graham Garden and Jeremy Hardy. I just thought were the funniest people. And I didn't know about all the stuff that goes on in terms of writing and preparation. I just thought, right, I've thought of that joke and he said it. So therefore, mm. I, I am capable of thinking the same things as them. It's not a completely disparate thing. But I, there's no entry into panel shows. I knew that stand-up was the thing. So going to watch Lee Mack and being in a comedy club that was just a yeah. room of a pub, it did start to open up. And I think by then I must have looked into the BBC New Talent. Oh, I wrote to the BBC, that's it, because we were living in Bristol. Yeah. And my mate and I used to have this thing that we used to call BBC syndrome, where people would walk past the BBC and they'd just start smirking to themselves. And I don't know if it's because they thought they were being filmed or they were wondering what was going <laughs> on in there, but they'd just sort of get this grin on their face that, like, God, I'm about <laughs> to get plucked. And I used to think that. I used to think, what if one day I walk past and someone just says, oh, my God, the guy who does the announcements on the radio is sick. Yeah, let's grab him. Can you come in and do an Irish accent, a Bristol accent, and a Scottish accent and announce this? I don't know what the thing would have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the same way, when you're six and you go to football in a kit, you think, well, if Gordon's tracking Zill, eventually the list will get to me. <laughs> I did sort of think, God, one day if I just walk past the BBC. So I wrote a letter to the BBC. I can't remember what department or who I wrote to. But I just said, look, I live in Bristol. I've just dropped out of uni. I will do anything in any department. I just, I need a vocation, entertainment related. Yeah. I don't mind if it's cameras, production, running. Can you guide me to what the start point is? And they said, that's not really how it works. (laughs) It was a very kind way of saying, (laughs) you don't just say, I want to be a comedian, give me a job. I'm sure you did in the 70s. Those nepotism pieces of shit. (laughs) that's all better now by the way yeah none of that anymore but i got a letter saying bbc new talent is how we find people so if you want to be a dj there's this Uh, thing where you can apply to send in a demo tape and do a bit of local radio and there was a stand-up one it was bbc new talent it said you send in a five minute tape of you doing material and we will put together a heat and i I wrote a stand-up set. I didn't know there were gigs, so I didn't do a gig. I spoke into a dictaphone, a stand-up set, and I sent it. I hope that tape has been destroyed because it's excruciating. It must be. Except it got you onto that competition. So it can't have been. The guy, I'm sure his name was Chris, and it's horrific that I don't remember his name because he's integral to me getting started. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure his name was Chris, and he said I could hear something in it, but it seemed bonkers because obviously everyone else had recorded a gig. They'd all done. I mean, Rod Gilbert won that competition, and he was just about to go full-time. Yeah. I just thought new talent obviously means people who've never done stand-up before. Otherwise, what a horrific lie. But, of course, it means people who aren't on telly, (laughs) basically. So this would have been 2003? 2003, yeah. So I would have written the letter about 2002, I think. So you were 20, 21? Yeah, 21, I think. That would have done my first gig at 21. Can you remember anything about the material and how you came up with it? Well, it must have been the set I did. I didn't gig between getting the... He didn't say, I'm going to put you through to the heat, but go and do some open mic. He just said, Mm. well, I'm going to put you through to the heat and see what it sounds like. So that set I wrote longhand... I had bits about, because I was chefing at the time, I used to listen to a lot of radio, so I had stuff about radio ads. I had stuff about not feeling like a real man and realising it when you go to do it all and places like that. And there's guys yeah, who've yeah, got yeah. chipboard. So I used to start putting bits of chipboard in my hair before I went <laughs> so that they wouldn't know I wasn't a real man. 
But I remember the first line said, comedy fall onto stage, question mark. And I thought, <laughs> nothing is funnier than a comedy fall. And at that point, I was sure I was going to be a slapstick. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. stuff I loved was Lee Mack bottom. Lee Evans was my favorite stand-up by a mile. And I just thought that's the sort of stand-up I'll do. I'll be a really wacky, zany oddball. And I'm not. <laughs> but already in there, some of the kind of themes that you went on to kind of really own and make your own in, in the bigger sessions. The part of the John Richardson character was already there, the kind of the beta male. Yeah, the self-effacing. That's the big thing I learned over the first few years in comedy is just attack yourself. It's always yeah. funny. It's the only thing you're justified to talk about. You can talk about certain issues, but you're going to have to be right about all of them. And I'm not. So... I know exactly what I think about myself and I know myself better than any other topic on the planet because I've been me all my life. And so when you were first putting that together and first did it as a gig, how did that feel? To go from having watched Lee Mack and thinking I could do it and from yeah. listening to Jeremy Hardy and Graham Garden thinking I'm getting that right in my head and even then making a, a recording of it. But then the first time that you're stumbling onto stage, how did that feel? nauseating i think in my head i thought this is going to be the only one i think i probably thought i just need to get it out of my system basically do a gig i'd applied for a job at the police and i'd got down to the last few to be a forensics officer with avon and somerset police and i thought that's the sort of thing i'll do i'll get a proper job for life so it was being a forensic officer or lee evans one or the yeah. other investigating deaths or dying myself <laughs> <laughs> so for some reason, I think as I told my friends I'm doing this gig, they said, oh, can we come and give you support? And again, I just didn't know enough to say no, because that would be awful. It's sort of like having an audience the first time you have sex. Like, obviously, I'm going to be shit. It's the first time I've ever done it, so don't come. I just said, yeah. And my friends came, and my mum came down from mm. the north with my sister, and they were there. The gig must have only seated about 60 people, and I think I knew 10 or 15 of them. That's a good percentage on your side. Yeah, they're on your side, but at the time you just think, oh, no, I'm sort of like masturbating in front of them. They're about yeah. to see me do something. So it felt so personal for like my thing, and it felt like all my life I've needed to do this thing that you don't know about, and I should have kept it secret. I should have just developed it for a little while. And when they were there in the gig, I suddenly realized, what have you done? You should have spent... Mm a few years just secretly going out and doing gigs and then told them when you were ready, mouthing off, oh, I'm going to be a bloody comedian, me, and then now you're at a gig and they're going to find out. I can see how it would feel like a big mistake at the time because it ramps up the fear. But do you think there was a positive side to that? Do you think it forced you to be good? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I had five pints and a double Jack Daniels and I hadn't eaten all day. Had you? Before you went on? Yeah, I was absolutely shitting myself. Because when I got there, I found out that everyone else had done comedy. So I was already yeah. nervous. And then they were all chatting to each other and they were all like, oh, yeah, well, have you done fucking Jeff's gig in Torquay? And I was like, mm. you guys know each other? And you're like, yeah, well, we've gigged together. I was like, oh, you've gigged before? And they would piss themselves. They couldn't believe it. They were like, well, yeah, of course. Wow. You don't enter the BBC until you're ready. And I was like, fuck me. I recorded my set in the storeroom of the kitchen I was a chef in at the time on a dictaphone. And I suddenly thought, this is going to be so bad. And my family are coming and my friend. I'm shaking now thinking about it. So I had a pint and then I had another pint and then I had five. And then just before I went on, I thought I'm going to be sick. Oh, and I was geez. at the back with a, an act called Kai Barron. And he said, let's have a Jack Daniels because he was nervous as wow. well. So we both had a double JD. I remember the first laugh and it was quite early on. Yeah. First minute or so. And I remember just thinking, oh, it's fine. Not that it was going to be brilliant, but it's not going to crash and burn. I suddenly went from the short term of this has to be brilliant to the long term of, oh, if I can write a thought that's in my head and it makes people laugh, I can be a comedian because that's all that is. And it suddenly flipped to, oh, it sort of doesn't matter now because I've actually, I've met comedians, I've done my first gig and I know the thoughts in my head are not different to the thoughts in Jeremy Hardy's head. It's the same thing. You think it, you say it. If they laugh, you're a comedian. Yeah. So it, it instantly calmed me down. So when you say, oh, it doesn't matter anymore, that wasn't like, oh, forget it, I've done it now, it's all over. Oh, no, in a totally opposite way. I will never do anything else for the rest of my life. I will always just write jokes and tell them to people. 
Do you think you'd have got to that point, though, if you hadn't known the rules, if you had have known that you don't enter the BBC competition until you've gigged, until you've refined it? Do you know what I mean? If you'd have gone the way that everyone else had gone because you knew how it was supposed to go, would you have still got to that point where you were winning competitions? I didn't win. <laughs> Never won. I got to the next round and then the guy said, you're going to be really good, but I can tell you're not ready. So the next round was at the Hen and Chicken, which was the gig I'd seen Lee Mack at. So obviously my mates came to that and that was like, well, now I am a comedian because I'm I'm on the same stage Lee Mack was on. So you can see it's working. But then he said after the next round was in London at the store, I think, and he said, you're not ready for that. <laughs> and he was bang on. I needed to just gig. But how many went through that first heat? How many were in it and how many got through? Do you know what? I don't think there was a number. I think they just went away. It wasn't like now where they announce it. And the winner is, it was, he watched everyone and he picked, right, here are three or four people, I think. I think Anna Crilly might have been there. I can't remember, but there were a few acts and I think maybe three or four of us went through to the next round. So out of what, how many, eight, ten? Maybe ten or twelve. So, I mean, for someone who, that's winning. Oh, absolutely. And the next day, the compo was a guy called Jeff Whiting, who was a stand-up, but he ran gigs. He maybe had 50 or 60 gigs. He rang me the next day and said, do you want gigs? And I remember ringing my mum and said, the compare's just rung me and he's offering me gigs. And that, just this speed of escalation from there yeah, to yeah. suddenly, and they weren't for any money. They were all 10-minute open spots. Because he was like, hey, can you drive? And I said, yes. And he said, are you willing to travel? I was like, I'll go anywhere. So that week, I must have booked in 20 spots in Birmingham, Torquay, Cardiff, wherever. I was like, I'll do the next one tomorrow. I mean, that validation instantly of going, that thing you thought you could do, you can do it. That must have felt incredible. Yeah, the wall came down. It was up to me then. It was if I work hard and I'm good enough... I can handle that because that's fair. It should be judged on your talent. So if I do loads of gigs and I'm shit, that's fine. The system works. But it was that initial thing of I don't get to be a comedian because I'm from Lancaster and you don't get comedians from Lancaster. They come from London and they've been gigging since they were six. That collapsing and realising, okay, I'm in it now. And now it's as fair as school. If I do the homework and I revise, I'm going to get there and I'll find out what I want to do. Everything after that was just fun. That first few years is just so much fun. The fascinating thing about that, though, is I do wonder if there's some link between, because it's not easy to make it as a comedian. There's lots of people who try and don't get to be on the telly every week. The difference with you is you didn't know the rules. You kind of went, I'm going to try and do that, and you managed to do it. And if you hadn't known the rules, that might not have happened. I might have tried less hard, I think. Had there been gigs in Lancaster, I probably would have started sooner, which I think would have been a mistake because you have less to say. I was only 21. I mean, who gives a shit what a 21-year-old thinks anyway? But at least I wasn't 16 because that's fine if you're Kevin Bridges and you're a wonderkind yeah, yeah. and you're born to do it. But I would have been shitter at 16 than I was at 21. And I was shit at 21, by the way. But I was just good <laughs> enough for some people to see there's something there. Well, clearly good enough for to get that instant validation of someone then saying are you free? Can you do these more? I'm going to book you. Because you must have had a similar thing because you were in a businessy, businessy job and you must have had that sense of, oh, I want to be doing the other thing. Yeah. And the similarity was not knowing the rules. So when we first came up with the idea of car share, knowing what I do now 10 years later is what you do is you pitch the idea and see if anyone's interested in this idea. There's two people stuck together in a car and you only see them on the way to and from where. It just would have gone nowhere. It's a little idea. But we didn't know that that's what you're supposed to do. So we wrote the first series. We wrote six episodes in three months. Then obviously our lucky break was that Paul knew Peter and he read it and thought it was great. But if we'd have known the rules, mm -hmm. we would have pitched it as an idea and gotten nowhere and probably not done it again. So there's that similarity. I just wonder if there's – and it's a kind of zigging when everyone else zags kind of thing. So for sure, there's something about just doing it in a different way, whether that's breaking the rules or not. But what happened for both of us there is the gap between having a go and then getting that validation – it was tiny. Whereas mm -hmm. if you do it the proper way, it can be months, years, decades between having a go and then getting the validation of someone saying, yeah, you know what, you're quite good. Yes, which is harder because you've got to back yourself. There's probably something in what you're saying that had I 
because the open mic nights were crap compared to the BBC. Mm. The BBC was a full room. It was the best club in the area, the Cavern in Bath, and it was properly emceed. Had I done a gig to seven people yeah, with a compare who's never done it before, I might have, yeah, had a shit gig and never done it again. Okay, time for a quick break, and we have got to that bit of the podcast. It's the Listener's Fist of First Challenge, where I'm going to shuffle the pack... I'm going to turn over a Fist of First card and I want you to email me your answer to this. Email me at fistoffirsts at gmail.com. Okay, here we go. Shuffling the pack. And this week the question is... Ooh, what's the first thing you'd do if you were invisible? Come up with the story. What's your answer? What's the first thing that came into your head? Email me at fistoffirsts at gmail.com. And if that doesn't spark an interesting answer, then tell me what have you done for the first time this week? Anything amazing, ridiculous, absurd, bizarre? Have you got a great first time story from this week? Email me at fistoffirsts at gmail.com and I shall read the best stories out in next week's episode. Okay, let's get back to it. And so when you were doing that, so that first time, that first heat, and the other 10 or 11 people there that were kind of laughing going, you've got to have got a type five before you did the yeah. BBC. Do you know how they felt when you, one, went down well, but two, got through? I don't remember any malice. I mean, Kai, I don't think he does comedy anymore, but he became a friend because you obviously, that's your people that are going through it at the same time. He was pleased with me and we worked together again. Yeah, I don't remember any malice. I mean, because of the five points, I don't remember anything after walking on stage. There's a picture of me. My sister got a picture of me coming off and I'm stepping off and I'm sort of waving. And where she's caught me, Fordy always takes the piss out of me because he <laughs> says, you look so arrogant because it looks like <laughs> really? I'm going, yeah, I fucking nailed yeah. <laughs> that. I'm, I'm hammered for a start. Yeah, My features yeah. aren't drooped in cool light. Like, yeah, I don't need to respond to this. I'm too pissed to react. <laughs> but it's such an exhalation of relief of oh my god and i think i probably just collapsed into my sort of friendship group had a couple more beers so i learned so much immediately i tell you there was another actor on called rodri reese who was a welsh comic and uh, there was rod gilborn and i had the second spot after the interval which is the yeah yeah that's the spot i didn't fucking know. yeah everyone's had a drink they're all back and comfortable and ready to go yeah and i think rod gilbert was on second in the first half so i think it went rodri reese and then rod mm. and rod said to me look we should swap because it's two welsh acts called rod and i don't think that's great and i said brilliant i was so keen to swap because i was like <laughs> i want mine fucking over with i want this yeah. done so we swapped years later i was like oh yeah because the second <laughs> absolutely as well is the best spot i see what you were doing yeah. and i remember the other act saying don't do that i was like no i want to be out of it <laughs> i'm gonna be too hammered to perform if i'm on a did you end up first or second then? I went second, yeah. So I went after Rodri Reese, which is exactly what I needed. I did need it. If I'd have been on after the interval, I might have been too hammered. And yeah. Rod absolutely should have won that competition. We were all doing fine. He went on. It was one of the most memorable performances I've ever seen. Even though you were hammered? Even though I was hammered, yeah. Oh, by then I was so relaxed. But he just did something that none of us were doing. It was like, oh... So you can also do that. We were all doing that. And what are you thinking? Yeah. Some <laughs> shitty joke about our appearance. And then it was all identikit sets. Yeah. And then Rod went on and he was sort of this character and he paused. I'd never seen an act pause just to approach the mic and not speak for a few seconds to control the room like that. I was like, oh my God, this guy's fucking amazing. And was that the first time you think you saw craft firsthand that close up, a real... Oh, that night was an absolute... That was like the first year of a degree in that one night, learning about other acts, what they're doing, where they're from, how where they're from influences, what kind of stuff they do. And then to see Rod and think, oh, he's at the level I'm at. I couldn't believe you could be as good as he was mm. and not on telly. Yeah, yeah. I was like, how has he not got his own series? Because he is echelons ahead of where we are and he's still just about to go full-time so did that affect how you thought about when you could make it as a career if he's that good and he's not quite yet giving up the day job it set a bar it was like this guy's in the same competition as you and that's how good he is so that's how good you need to be 
and it probably got in my head and I probably then the next three gigs unconscious had a Welsh accent or yeah, oh, yeah. just thought, well, that's what comedy is. So they've gone, no, no, time for them plan, Bob. <laughs> and then like, no, you're not. I was like, all right, I need to be as good as him, but not do his stuff. I get it. Did he walk out with a big pause then? Next <laughs> yeah, time absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I was just rod. And I see it now when I see new acts, I just think, oh, you don't even know you've just watched too much Dylan Moran, but you'll work it out. So in terms of then what you, as soon as you start to think, watching other people, I'm going to learn stuff from them. In the next few years, as you kind of went through them writing the big shows, where else did your influences come from there? Who else were you learning from? Or where else outside of comedy even? The privilege to me of gigging was getting into the gigs for free. That's why I couldn't believe. Even Mm. the shitty room above a pub gigs. To have lived in Lancaster all my life and literally not understood that there were gigs, to then realized that where I was in Bristol, there was about four gigs in Bristol. There was three in Bath. Will Hodgson had a great gig in Chippenham. There was acts running gigs in Newport and Cardiff. There was a gig in a place called Corsham. There was a gig in Stroud. I was like, oh my God, comedy's everywhere. If I get on the bill, I get to watch. So I would watch the compare, the opening act, the other open spot, who I would travel with and we would talk about comedy. And then I'd watch the headliner and that was right because I knew the next thing was I need 20 so I can be the opening 20. So I'd watch them intently. The headliner was just right. How do I do that? How am I the best one on the bill? Because I knew I was trying to smash it and I knew the mm. other middle spot was trying to smash it and the opening act is trying to smash it. Yeah. How do you, at every gig you get to, you know you're the best one there. How do you do that? And I sometimes gig now with newer acts who come and do their open spot and leave. And I think well, you're not going to make it. You've got to watch the narrative of the whole night and understand. And I still now, if I'm on a club night, I will get there early so that I can write a joke to open with that's about something that's happened that night or in the room because that's the game. That's so interesting, though, as well, to feel how you learn then from everybody as you become basically a student of the craft. And you learn for everyone's shit. And that's when everyone says, who are your influences? And you naturally you say, well, I loved Lee Evans. But what you don't say is, I learned more from shit people than good yeah. people. Because good yeah. people you can't always emulate. I could live a thousand lifetimes. I'll never be as good as Billy Connolly, Kevin Bridges, people like that. Just not going to happen. But what I can do is watch shit people and say, ooh, right, I'm not going to do that again. Or talk to them and realize, oh, you don't watch enough comedy or you're too arrogant, you've a dislikable demeanour on stage that you can't put your finger on, but you walk up and the audience just feels like, I don't want to laugh at you because I don't like you. So what were the kind of things that you learnt there from those that were shit? What other definitely don't touch that kind of approach? One thing is acknowledge when you've been bad. So come Mm. off and say, I was shit. Don't ever say that audience was shit or that room was shit. Because of course there are bad rooms, bad microphones, bad audiences. And Edinburgh is where you learn that because you're gigging the same room every day at the same time and every gig will be different because of you, because of the weather, because of what some people have seen that day. There is so much yeah. out of your control that all you can focus is on yourself. So when you have a bad gig, say, what could I have done differently there? And some people just don't. They come off. Some people come off having died and then say, that was good, wasn't it? And you think, no, it wasn't. Mm. Not at all. And that's why they're not going to get better because they're not noticing what they've done wrong. It's fine. I've met loads of people who just loved they knew they were shit at it, but they liked to do it anyway. It was mm. like some people go to Zumba. They went to do gigs, and on the Thursday night, they die on their arse at the pub they're drinking, and they loved it as a hobby. That's absolutely fine. But if you want to get better, you have to absolutely laser focus on yourself and what you can change. And that also starts with just churning over material and realizing it's not about me perfecting this gag. I need to write the next one. Yeah, and yeah. some people would come off and they'd tweak the wording on this line. Oh, that line's not working. Fucking get rid of it. Maybe it's shit. Yeah. And it's not that you're shit. The next gag you write will be better, but let's not do keyhole surgery on this roadkill. Just get rid of it. Let it die. Comparing was a massive boon to me because comparing meant I could play the same gig every night because I'm doing different stuff because I'm writing every day and I'm talking to the audience. And that was an absolute gear shift of realizing I can actually walk up with nothing. I can go on stage with nothing and do 10 minutes. Wow. So then how is my material going to be better than that? How is my material going to be worth not just chatting to the audience? 
just on the being shit and coming off stage and going, oh, fucking hell, that was shit. Can you remember the first time you really felt that? <laughs> and maybe that's where you learnt more than anything. Will Hodgson's gig in Chippenham, because the BBC one went well, and then I think I did another open spot in Bristol at a pub called The Bunch of Grapes. That went well, and I could see the people around me knew I had a death coming. It wasn't that I was getting arrogant, but I just hadn't had that gig, and it came, I think it was my third or fourth gig was Will Hodgson's gig in Chippenham. And I said my first joke, and for whatever reason, I think I probably said it too fast, or I was nervous that night, or the mic cut out, or something. That first mm. joke didn't get a laugh, and I absolutely shat myself. And I then jumped to my last gag. I thought, well, the only other good joke I've got is the one at the end. I've got one good mm. one at the beginning, one at the end, and then the rest is coasting. So I did the last gag. That didn't get a laugh because I hadn't set it up. You hadn't set it up, yeah. And then I had eight minutes of filler, and I think I did about four or five minutes and just said, I'm really sorry, this has been fucking terrible. And I just walked off. Oh, man. How did that feel? Horrific. Yeah, horrific. Not just for the audience, but your peers. Will was like a, and still is, an icon of the comedy scene in the West Country. Went on to win the Perrier Award. And I think maybe Russell was there, Russell Howard. Enough people that you think, people are going to talk about that one. You're saying that was like your third or fourth gig? Yeah, something like that. That feels to me like that's at a moment where you might end up thinking, nah, I thought this was for me, but it wasn't. But instead you kind of took from that and thought... The feeling of the first one was so intoxicating that Mm. I knew I could get over a death. And I knew I just need to go and do the fifth gig now. I'd have done the next gig that night. If I could have walked to a gig in Aberdeen, I would have done it to just go and do another gig and just try it again. Waiting that whole day to get to your next gig, thinking that you're only as good as your last gig thing, thinking, right. And you learn more that day. When it goes well, you look at the gags and you think, well, these are all fine, but just put me on telly, I'm ready. I'll do Live with the Apollo. When you die, you suddenly realise that's not very good. And why would they laugh at that? Well, that's terrible. Don't do that again. And then you've been that set. But that's a strong mentality, though, to go, right, let me back on the horse now. I can't stress enough. It's all I had. I was so depressed. I dropped out of uni. I'm not saying I didn't have family. It's not a cry for help. But in terms of where your life was at, I'd thrown everything into that basket. And you realise now what a privilege that is. And I think now, how do we get the amazing talent that exists, that is out there, from older comics because I was 21 I could afford to be arrogant I had to earn 260 pound a month to live in that bed and I didn't have any outgoings I wasn't married there are voices out there that we need on the comedy circuit so that it's not just there's a load of men my age because we all started the same time everything I'm saying there's 50 other comics will tell you we grew up in the 90s we had a privileged life we started gigging we obsessed with it no one wants us on telly but we've learned to be really good because we've just had nothing else to focus our time on but there are people out there with kids struggling to make ends meet who can't drive to Mm. Wigan for an open spot and we have to start getting more of that talent on stage you think it's getting harder and harder to get in I think financially now things are harder than they've ever been and the money in comedy circuit money hasn't changed since 1992 the money you got for headlining gigs is literally the same now or less than it was then so you cannot subsist on the circuit like you used to that money was brilliant in the 90s it bought you a house in south london yeah now that area of south london is gentrified and that house is worth a million and a half pounds you're still getting 170 quid or whatever so it is really hard i think it's the same for writing as well when people ask me about how to break into say i've got a good idea for a sitcom i've got a good story Mm. got a good set of characters all you could do is give the best possible advice and maybe even you know a few contacts that might be relevant but it's still so hard to get into anything like this at the moment yeah but once you're in and then so after you'd done the competitions you'd bombed you'd learned you'd watched everybody while you were doing it what was the first like big show the big full set you did was that spatula pad spatula pad was the first hour yeah the first hour and again yeah. that's an evolution so the first year i went to edinburgh i just watched and i kept on floors And I remember watching the first gig I ever saw in Edinburgh. And again, this is not knowing the rules. I went Mm. to watch Barry Cryer and Ronnie Golden because they were on the afternoon I arrived and I really wanted to see them. I was like, Barry Cryer's a legend. Uh, Yeah. 
I think people think your first Edinburgh story is going to be like Kitson at 3am in an abattoir or something. Yeah. I went straight. I looked around the audience. I was like, oh, there's no one else like me in this room. <laughs> but that year, I think Will Smith was doing the 10 arguments. I should have won show. Richard Herring was doing the Tasks of Hercules Terrace. Oh, yeah. I just went to everything. I couldn't afford to do a lot because mm. I didn't have a lot of money and I didn't get passes because I wasn't performing. So mm. I sort of begged favours from mates to say, oh, can you get me into this person's show? Or I probably watched a lot of the same show because my mates would let me in every time. But I went up for a few days and watched. Then I went up and did a show called The Big Value, which is it's a club night, but on in Edinburgh. So you get to be there for the month, but you're still just doing your 20. Jason Manford was on the year I did the early show. He was headlining the late show and he was doing the same thing. He was like, I'm going to do an hour next year. He was looking at every room. He was looking at what slot is best, what time, what venue. When's this like 2006, seven, something like that? Must have been, yeah, because I think Spatula Pad would have about 2007 or eight. So again, five years to get mm. an average hour. It wasn't great. And then I did the Comedy Zone, which again is like three acts, four acts, doing 20 minutes each, but you're in the pleasance there, so you're where all the proper comics are. And, yeah, yeah. And then I, I did the hour after that, so it was a very slow build. Again, it was so exciting to be doing full Edinburgh previews. They're brutal. If doing 10 minutes is hard, dying for an hour, and sometimes <laughs> you do. The first joke doesn't get a laugh, and you know you've got 10 to fill. If the first joke doesn't get a laugh and you're doing a fucking hour. Jesus. It's horrific. Horrific. You've experienced that. You've had a bad. Oh, yeah. I had loads of really bad hours. So what goes through your head while you're thinking, I've got 58 more minutes of this? Well, luckily I could compare. So you can sort of come out. I don't know how acts write shows that are, they're either in character or something. I was able, the first thing you do and it takes a long time to learn this, is just acknowledge that it's gone bad. Yeah. Audiences feel it. They don't trust you if you don't feel it too. So if a joke bombs and you don't go, whoop, fucking hell, you didn't like that one. The minute you say that, you've then got a laugh. So it doesn't yeah. matter that the first joke didn't because the second thing you said did. But there are acts again, they think, oh, I'll just do the next one and there's a good guy coming in a minute. Just be in the room and just say, whoa, yeah. what's the problem there then? And so that must be a quite a skill. To have an hour, it must be structured, if not scripted. But to be able to kind of be in the room and adjust it and deviate. You can't over an hour. And Edinburgh is such a unique challenge because financially then you're in. By the time you're previewing, you've paid for a room, you've paid for accommodation, you've paid for advertising, you've paid to be in the brochure, you're in. So there's no like, oh, <laughs> the previews aren't going so well, I'm going to pull out. You're in. So there's no pulling out. And you are then trying to please the audience that's in the room, which mm. should be your only focus as a comic, but it isn't because you're also secretly trying to please all the other comics that are up there because you want them to be saying, oh, so-and-so is smashing yeah, yeah, yeah. You're trying to please reviewers who, again, are looking for something, and never more so now than then. They are looking for something to write about. They can't just say it was really funny for an hour, five stars. They have to say, well, it's about this, it's about that. That is a different challenge to you as a comic and you're trying to please the TV people that might be there, or radio people that, oh, that might be a sitcom, or he could go on a panel show or whatever. That's four different challenges. So the pressure is almost overwhelming at points. Oh, how you do that, I have no idea. Well, you don't. That's all in your head. What you do is you do the first one, and you just write the funniest show you can write. Yeah. And if you do that three years in a row, you go up there with a different hour every year that's funny. Certainly when I started, you're probably going to get something. Right. Funnily, I mean, this hasn't gone out yet, but I've got some listener questions. Have you? That's yeah. Crafty. I know. So who's listening now then? I don't know. Is it your family under the desk? <laughs> so I put this out on Twitter or X. Oh, this will all be hate. No, it's not. And there were some good questions, but I've whittled it down to a few crackers. So here's a good one. When did you first find comfort in the cardigan? <laughs> That's from Terry from Kent. Oh, that is a good question. Yes, it do you is know, a good question. I do remember seeing someone in a cardigan and thinking, bloody hell, he looks good. <laughs> Who do you think that was? Uh, was it Val Dunican? Yeah, I thought you might say Val Dunican. <laughs> it was Richard Bacon. Richard Bacon, I really? Show. I think it was called Richard Bacon's Beer and Pizza Club. You wouldn't have him down as a cardigan wearer. You wouldn't, would you? no. And I think that's exactly what did it for me. I thought, uh, like, yeah. Richard Bacon's wearing a cardigan. He looked good in it, but he's tall and slim. I wear them on tour, <laughs> but I wouldn't wear 
a cardigan for a club night, but I knew I never wanted to wear a suit mm. just because it depressed me. It made me feel like I was back being a sales rep again and those weren't happy years. So yeah. But the cardigan was a sort of it gave me the formality of the suit with an approachability. Yeah, I like it. So it's well thought through. <laughs> it's not just an accident. Well, I tried it once and it worked, and then I thought, well, yeah. I'll just do that forever. But I'm a remarkably simple man like that. <laughs> I would eat the same tea for the rest of my life. I'll happily just say, well, if cardigans are fine and they're comfortable and they're good for all weathers, you can wear them quite late into the summer before you get too hot. And like now is the ideal time I'm cracking them back out again, getting to autumn. And you can bleed them in one button at a time, I guess, weather-wise. Yeah, you could have it open as a sort of jacket. You yeah, wear yeah. it with a full shirt if you're doing formal. You can go shirt and tie if you with want. With a cardigan, a tie and a cardigan. Oh, I've done that, mate. I'm doing it have now you? on tour. Yeah, you can do that. <laughs> you can have a jacket over the top. The cardigan becomes a sort of informal waistcoat in that scenario. Or you could pair it with a polo shirt. Or you pair it with just an ordinary uh, turtleneck. Yeah. I think in maybe M&S should sponsor uh, this episode. Yeah, well, Michael Owen's doing Peacocks or something, isn't he? Is he? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen on Michael Owen. So if someone's listening to this and thinking, do you know, I need to get me some of that cardigan action, <laughs> do you have a favoured cardigan? I don't have a favoured cardigan. I'm not. No, I'm that's, not, that's very wise. There's no royal seal. Yeah. Right, next question. This is from Andy Riley, actually. So Andy Riley, the comedy writer. Oh, yeah. Andy Riley, Kevin Cecil, Nomeo and Juliet, famously. Veep. Great film. He says, so first time you handled the heckle well, what was it? Oh, God. I don't remember handling them well. I remember handling them badly. And I think heckling is, a, is such an interesting topic because it's something that everyone who doesn't do stand-up is obsessed with. Mm. Because I think in films, it's always the bit where the act gets heckled and the gig turns. In reality, it just isn't like that. By the time you're getting heckled in an aggressive way, it's already done. If you're not doing well enough, yeah. just the support of the crowd gets you through, the match has already been won. So when you hear acts say like, oh, and then somebody shouted this and I was finished, you were finished before that because you weren't doing well enough. Yeah. If you've got everyone, then you'll win through the heckle. Is that what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you're doing well at a gig and someone says you're shit, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to say, I don't think I am. And the people all laugh because <laughs> they don't want... But there are acts who thrive on that. There's a big... And the Instagram has made it so much yeah. harder to counter that because there are acts who will put up a heckle put down and then say, come and see me on tour and call hey, me yeah, this yeah, yeah. It's not my cup of tea. Isn't James Acaster's tour called Heckler's Welcome or something like that? Is it? I yeah. think so, yeah. And then it gets to the point where... I love people joining in because yeah. they very often make it better, but those aren't good stories. But I love when people shout out on tour because to have the confidence to say it, they know it's going to be good. And actually having seen a few of your gigs live, they tend to be just people who, who love you anyway. Do you know what I mean? It tends to be people who are, are saying something kind. Yeah, once you're on tour, they are there for you. It's not of the course. same as being in the Glee Club on a Saturday night where they've worked all week and they don't know who they're getting. So they want you to win. One last one from the thousands of listeners we've got already. <laughs> First joke you regretted making in retrospect and why? That's from Ed from London. Oh, God, they're deep, aren't they? I mean, there'll be absolutely loads. I don't – there are none in the sense of – I don't know. I shouldn't say this because I'm asking for trouble. Someone's going to troll <laughs> my back catalogue. I think – no, I see – People now say oh, it was a different time then. But I think fucking 15 years ago, the lines now are the same as then. You might have been able to cross them more then, but the line was the same. You mm. just got away with crossing it and now you don't. But to imply that there wasn't a line there is horseshit. And actually because of what you said before about your material tends to be self-deprecating, it's all about you. Yes. It's less likely to be a thing for you anyway, I would have thought, because it's not like you think, oh, well, I wouldn't say that now because I'd get really offended. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think... The only jokes I regret are that when I've not punched myself, I've had an easy line about, and again, I couldn't name someone, but I've certainly done jokes about Celebrity X who's in the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then I was, I'm just a comic on a stage in Bath and you're on telly. And now having made that transition myself, yeah, you don't ask to be on telly. It's where the evolution of your career takes you. You're the same person then that you were I've sometimes thought, oh, it's fine to say, I'm going to pick the name Vernon Kay. I don't know if I've ever done a joke about Vernon Kay. I don't know what it would have been. But the person that you're used to seeing on telly yeah. 
who to you is like, well, you're a TV presenter, so you're fine. And now you think, no, he's just a guy. He's just a guy with kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it'd be those ones I regret. And my general sanctimony. I'll tell a story about Sean Locke as um, it was his memorial recently. Yes, it was. Did you go? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I said a few words. And one story I didn't tell when I first met, I idolized Sean. So one mm. of the sort of 15 stories high was just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just an absolute work yeah. of genius. And that's about the time I just dropped out of uni and I wanted to pick up. So Sean, in my eyes, was one of my comedy idols. And I'd done a radio thing with him and then I did live at the Apollo and he was on, you do two shows a night. He was on the the late show, I think, and we were on the early show. So I'd done my set and it had gone well, gone to the bar, had a few beers. And then him and Mickey Flanagan came in and I was like, holy shit, we got talking. Mm. And I thought, I need to tell these guys that I'm proper. My fear is that I come across like, oh, he just wants to be on telly. And I was talking about the proper stand-up and like mm. all these pricks who've got writers and they're not proper and we're the guys. Thought I'd put the world to rights. Next day, I've got an unknown number ring my phone, and I didn't take it obviously because I'm not a psychopath. <laughs> but the message said, "Hello, John. It's uh, Sean Locke." And I scree. I can still remember exactly where I stood in my kitchen. I remember the mug I was reaching for, and I rang him straight back. And I thought, "Oh God, he's going to tell me how good he thought I was and that he wants to work together." <laughs> he said, uh, "You know, so stuff or so. It was good." But you just need to calm down a bit. <laughs> just, I'd so gone off on one afterwards in the bar. I was like, I'm that, me and you are like, we're the same. No, you're doing all right. You know, it'll happen for you. You just need to, don't worry about what everyone else is doing. Just calm down a bit. And he was bang on. And the one thing I learned from Sean of it, all the shows we did is do your thing. And your thing as a comic is to be funny. If you're on telly, be funny. So often genius is boiling down a complicated message into four words. Just calm down a bit. Just calm down a bit. So much in that. It sounds flippant, but potentially life-changing advice, isn't it? Because that's saying, this is how to get there. It's almost like he knew how I was with my friends and how I drove, like everything. The way I drive is different now because I'm 40. and oh, I, yeah. Now I just think, oh, maybe their kid's sick and they're trying to get to hospital. Do you know, <laughs> you don't need to blast your horn and chase them. Just calm down a bit. But it's also not just the ability to see that as the right bit of advice, but to get on the phone to you. To take that, because it also goes back to what you said about the open spots that first night. Were they annoyed that you'd done well or something? It isn't like that at comedy. It is such a network. And if you're a comic, then you're one of us. Yeah. And you support other comics and you want them to do well because them doing well doesn't threaten you. But to even have that at his level, to take that time out, I was so grateful. I mean, it wounded me at the time. Did it? I was gutted. Oh, yeah. I was gutted. <laughs> well, because you were expecting... I thought he was going to say, oh, you're brilliant. I've had a word with the producers at Cats and you're going to be on next week. And it was just like... Can you tour with me? Equal billing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just chill out and he was exactly right. Oh, amazing. But yeah, what a series, 15 stories I was. It was two, wasn't it? it did two series. Two series, yeah. And I think it's finding an audience now, sadly, because he's gone. But, you know, with Martin Treneman and all the supporting cast, and just the idea, just how it looked. We could talk for another hour about working class comedy and the colour of it and that it looks shit. Yeah, the whole style. Everything's dirty. It's not, I can't stand middle class sitcoms that pertain to be working class, but they're not because you're like, well, look where they fucking live. Uh, yeah, yeah. 15 Stories High was perfect. It was. It was genius. A last question. I want to end on a last, actually, rather than a first. So, This is the last podcast I'll ever do, Tim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you want me to say it, I'll say it. I'm done. There's no others now. Yeah, I'm out. <laughs> What's the last comedy discovery you've made? So the last thing you saw and it kind of blew you away, last thing you've, you discovered and thought, do you know what, they or that show or that TV show, or the, the last thing you thought, yeah, they've got it. There's a thing called Meet the Richardsons. Hey, there it's we on go. Dave. I've heard it's a work of genius and it's redefining sitcom. So because of the sort of Instagram thing now, I find out about a lot of American stand-ups. I'm so glad that I started when I did and I didn't have to upload footage of myself. But there's an American comic who'd done their sort of equivalent of BGT, I think. I don't know what they call it. I don't know what the name would be for Britain's Got Talent yeah. in America. Can't think. Like that's a thing. Britain's Got America, something like that. But yeah, his name's Drew Lynch and he really made me laugh and I just saw a little clip 
And now it's like a gift because I follow him. I get sent loads of other comics who they're just totally not on my radar. There's a lot of good stuff over there. Same as us. There's just loads of really good stand-ups just going out and doing clubs and touring. I think Taylor Tomlinson is fantastic. She doesn't tour over here, but because of Instagram, I just get to log in every now and again and I'll without even searching my phone will suggest a really good clip of hers and yeah incredibly grateful for it so taylor thompson and britain's got talent in america taylor tomlinson and drew lynch yeah they're two really funny people yeah amazing thank you john honestly it's been a real pleasure chatting really appreciate you making the time amongst making your own podcasts to come and chat on mine and be my first on fist to first thank you very much Well, I hope you enjoyed that. There was some great stuff in there. For me, I'll take away, don't be afraid to break the rules. Breaking conventions and doing things differently can give you the edge. Study the field. John talked about watching all of the other comedians. That's how you find out what doesn't work. So you can work out why it doesn't work and do things differently. And don't be afraid to ditch ideas that aren't working. That makes room for new ideas. I'll be back next week with a new episode. And in the meantime, don't forget to email me at fistoffirsts at gmail.com with all of your first-time stories. And if you enjoyed the episode, please give it a review on your podcast platform of choice. 